Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the DealMaker Show. So super excited about the guests that we have today. I think that we're going to be learning quite a bit when it comes to building, scaling, I mean, exiting, I mean, you, you name it. So I guess without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest today, Patrick Quigley. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. So originally you were born in, let's say, Connecticut. But not really Connecticut because you feel more like you're like part of a Cleveland, you know, at least. The, That's the, right. Yeah. How's life growing up there, Patrick? Well, so I moved around a lot, but I am from Cleveland. All of my sports teams allegiance are Cleveland. I'm a diehard Cleveland Browns fan. I have a very fond affinity for Cleveland. I live in Los Angeles now and I joke with my wife all the time that we should move back there. That's amazing. And how, how was it there? Because I know that you were exposed to, uh, you know, the... Duke University there very early on. Your father, you know, was very much involved there. So, so how was how was life growing up, and 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 also like why why engineering? Because it seems that that problem solving thing has been something that has you know come with you along the way in your professional journey quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, growing up in Cleveland was great. I mean, the people are wonderful. The weather is terrible, but it's such a great city. <laughs> Two great months, May and September, are absolutely tremendous. Um, yeah, you're right. So my my dad was is a physician. And so growing up with him, I, you know, I got exposed to healthcare and, you know, he was, uh, he was on staff at, at Duke. And so that's how I learned about Duke early on. But the reason I wanted to go into engineering is actually a different story. My grandfather actually gave me a hundred dollars of IBM stock for a gift a long time ago. And so I used to, you know, check on that as a child, like, how's the stock doing? How's the stock doing? And for those of you that, that remember kind of the eighties, like IBM kind of missed the whole PC thing. And so their stock just crashed. So even though they had great tech, they, they, they were unable to kind of perform in the market. And so in watching that, I learned like, hey, I, always, I want to be an engineer, but I always wanted to be in the business side of an engineering company. And so I chose to go to Duke because they had this unbelievable program between their engineering school and their business school. And so I went there to go do that. And of course, you know, life is different. Uh, I got there, I did engineering school. And after three years, I was like, well, maybe I should know something about business before going to business school. So I left and I didn't actually go to the business school program. I just completed engineering. But that's kind of how I ended up there. Well, look, Duke gave you everything. I mean, he gave you obviously some knowledge. He gave you the access to really understand what you needed to do next. But more importantly, he gave you the opportunity of meeting who is now your wife. So it doesn't get better than that. Yeah, so my, I met my wife there. We met on a community service program. She's one of the first people I met at Duke. 
Um, and yeah, no, we've been together. We're just selling, uh, celebrating our 21st wedding anniversary wow. actually this month. Congratulations. That's amazing. So, so let's talk about you leaving Duke because after Duke, you know, really getting that, that idea that you needed to know a little bit more about business, you end up in McKinsey. And, you know, one thing that is amazing is that some of the best entrepreneurs that I interview are those that have a, a background in consulting for some reason. And I find that maybe it's like the way that you are able to structure big problems into small problems and then tackle those. But in your case, I mean, you had a pretty nice uh, journey with McKinsey. I mean, you helped them with their branding, you know, uh, initiatives as well. So how was that journey for you? And what did you really get from that experience? Yeah, it was incredible working with uh, at McKinsey. Um, when I was coming out of school, uh, you know, as an engineer, again, I always wanted to be on the business side. So I never had heard of McKinsey. Actually, one of the deans there suggested I learn about it. And as I met more and more of the people, oh my, I was so blown away at how smart everyone was. So I was like, I figured I could go there. Like everybody's smarter than me. I'm just going to learn constantly. I'm, they're going to put me in places that frankly, a 22 year old should not be. You should not be advising the board of any company when you just graduated from engineering school. And so it was a great opportunity to go and just learn about how the top companies in the world have grown and succeeded and where they made mistakes. And so it was all about learning. And you're right. Um, I, I had an opportunity to help launch their consumer branding practice 20 years ago. Um, but that was one of many things that I got the privilege of getting to work on. And one of your colleagues, actually, I mean, talking about business, you got, you know, quite a quite a master's, you know, in, 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 in business before even attending Wharton, which is where you did your MBA. But leaving, you know, McKinsey was obviously a pivotal moment for you. Uh, and that's because you received the call of one of your colleagues. So, so what happened there? Yeah, one of the things that I learned at McKinsey was that really everything is about people. It's not necessarily about what you're working on. It's about who you're doing it with. And so I got connected up through one of the partners that I worked with at McKinsey, a McKinsey, a former McKinsey guy that was starting a business out in California, a gentleman by the name of Doug Valenti, a great leader. And um, I had a privilege of going out and meeting with him and, and learning about, um, about what he's doing. And it was one of those wonderful experiences where he, he actually pitched the company to me on a napkin in a restaurant in Palo Alto. And so um, I decided to, uh, to leave McKinsey. And I remember him telling me, he's like, hey, if you want to come join me, that's great, but I'm not moving you and I'm not going to pay you much of anything. So it was, a, it was actually kind of a really amazing kind of like jump in, uh, you know, full on. I, at that point, I, was, I asked my wife to marry me and I got, tried to convince her to move to San Francisco with me. And so we get out there and it was the opportunity to build a company from a napkin, which ultimately 10 years later, we took to a public offering. So I feel really privileged to have been able to take kind of some of the learnings that I had in, in kind of growth and applying it to building something. As an engineer, I love to build things. And what does it what does it feel like, or or what does it look like when you are part of a you know a rocket ship like that? I mean, uh, being one of the first employees, being part of the founding team, and then you know like ringing the bell and taking the company public for over a billion bucks. I mean, is quite an accomplishment. And I think that that's a a wealth of knowledge, you know, that uh, that opens your eyes, you know, to a whole nother level to how business really needs to be conducted. So I guess, how, how is it like when you're part of a rocket ship like that? Well, I mean, when you're on a rocket ship, sometimes it doesn't feel like a rocket ship, right? It's just a lot of work, right? So to join a startup, and, you know, I mean, you know this, you're an entrepreneur as well. Like, you just got to be willing to do whatever it takes. You have to understand what the mission is. And you, you have to do like, like, I literally helped drag get cables dragged into the first office so we could have phones, right? And, um, you know, anything that you need to do to get things done is, is how startups work. And it's fun. You, it's, it's fun about people. You know, you go from just a few people at Doug's house to, you know, uh, uh, you know, our first office. I think we had it packed in on folding tables of like 100 people at one point before we got real space. 
Um, and so it's just it's just fun to try to build something and be on a mission. I mean, that that was one of the first online marketing companies ever. Uh, so what we did, we felt like was was really pioneering and it was exciting. So what was your key lesson from the experience with Queen Street? I think the key lesson is, you know, make no assumptions, try, iterate. And when you're building a team, just really focus on getting the right people, people that share your vision and your passion, because you're going to be in a foxhole with your team. You want to make sure that they believe in what we're trying to do, because when things get hard, because they're going to get hard uh, and you're going to be tested, you, you need to have the right folks in there to kind of uh, to power through it. You got to be be very accountable. You've got to be constantly willing to try new things. And that's kind of, you know, you got to expect failure. Right. Um, you don't want patterns of failure, um, but you want you want enough failure that, you know, you're you're learning because if you're not failing, you're not you're not trying hard enough. And as the saying goes, happy wife, happy life. So at this point, you know, your wife wanted to do law school. So she went to Penn and and this was your segue into doing your MBA. So uh, how was that, you know, going from, you know, being in a rocket ship like that to all of a sudden, you know, doing an MBA and learning about case studies? I mean, probably you you knew more than anyone in there about how to build and scale something. Oh, I don't know about all that. There's a lot of really smart people at Warden. I mean, as you know, um, yeah. I, I felt it was, again, it was a privilege. So, um, you know, it was, we, I went back to Warden right after the doc, the dot-com bust. So I went into to Doug and took a leave of absence from the startup. My wife, it was really important to her to go back to law school. Um, and so she chose where we went and it was great. It was a, it was a great privilege. I felt a little guilty, to be honest, because she worked really hard. <laughs> like law school is the real deal. Like right. we'd go over and try to pull her out of the law library and, and I couldn't get her to do it. We'd all go out to dinner and having a good time. Um, so it was a great opportunity again for people. And yes, of course, the classes were great because you, you, it really rounds out your perspectives on things. But for yeah. me, it also expanded the perspective globally. Like I had never worked internationally and half of our class was from all over um, and different industries that you would just never think of. Um, and so it was a really rewarding experience. And constantly, like with everything, you got to figure out what do you want to get out of it? And yeah. as long as you're kind of very focused on that, like you're going to have a great time, a great experience. You know, one thing that is very interesting here from your story is that, you know, obviously in Wharton, you know, one of the uh, final uh, projects is to kind of like do a startup or do something with some of the uh, classmates there, you know, and, and, and as I have mentioned to you, I've been guest lecturing there for seven years, incredible community. Uh, but one, one thing that, you know, is surprising to me is that instead of like, using this opportunity to launch your own company, you literally went in and worked for somebody else. So, so why did you make that decision? Oh, that's really interesting. So you're right. I, I totally remember. I think the class is 801. It's like an entrepreneurship class. Like, like it, it was tremendous. I think we worked on a, a company that created credit scores in developing nations, leveraging um, utility bills to try to build a score. So that was kind of our concept. Uh, we did fine. Interestingly enough, the person that won the uh, the contest that year started a pet insurance company, um, and it's one of the big pet insurance companies now. Uh, and so, just total sidebar. But I didn't go that direction because I felt like I didn't know enough yet to start my own thing. Like I had a great experience at McKinsey to see big companies. I went the exact opposite way with with um, with Doug and, and his company. Um, and so, coming out of of business school, I wanted to go back to the Bay Area. And I decided to join a company called BEA Systems, which is a middleware company. It's kind of like the, the plumbing of software for those of you that aren't software guys. And the reason I joined it is because this is an incredible company. It was the fastest company to go from zero to a billion dollars in, in sales and software at the time. It took them seven years, which today may feel slow, but it felt really fast then, <laughs> right? So after the dot-com bust, their stock fell through the floor. And, and so I joined their marketing department. I was so excited. Here I get a chance 
to learn how does one of the great new companies in the world fail? Like what's going on? Like how, what can I learn about preventing so that when I go do my thing, I don't, I don't trip in the same place. And I, I literally remember the first week I was there, the CMO came on and pulled us all into a room and said, okay, we're laying off half of you guys. This is the wow. first week I'm there. And I was like, oh, well, I'm gone. Like I'm the new guy, but I got, yeah. I got to stay. And then from there, I got the privilege. And the reason I joined it is it was all engineering. And I had an opportunity to come in and be one of the few business folks. And I got to help them launch a solutions business. And so creating a business within a business and help figure out like, how do you go ahead and grow, return sustainable growth to a business? It was, a, it was an unbelievable experience. Um, worked with incredible folks. Rich Giraffo came in and ran Americas and I had a privilege to work with him. Um, he now is one of the senior guys who went up through HP and everything. So um, I think he's one of the senior guys at Salesforce now. So definitely a good experience to see as well, you know, how the potential turnaround of a company happens. But, you know, in that journey, you received a call from Queen Street and uh, it was your time to return. I did. Uh, again, I kept a really great relationship with um, the folks at Queen Street. I, you know, um, just like I, I always felt a lot of loyalty towards Cleveland, I felt a lot of loyalty toward, towards um, the, the team um, that I've helped, uh, helped to be part of. And so Doug, Doug called me up and said, hey, we're at the point now where we're going to take Queen Street public. And we've been a consumer-focused company, and we want to offer a, a B2B business. And we're, we'd like to see if you could come here and help us build a B2B arm of our business in preparation of going public. And so at that point, um, BEA Systems was just, about, was, was just acquired by Oracle. So I was kind of reflecting on, like, where's the next place that I can learn? And, like, the opportunity to go back to the startup that I was at and, and help, um, help Doug kind of, if we could, um, accomplish growth enough to get, get public. Um, it was really exciting. And so I, I felt uh, really lucky to be able to go back and rejoin that team and, and spend the next few years helping them build the, their B2B business and then help take that public in 2010. That's amazing. So, so in this case, obviously, you take it to the next level with Queen Street. You know, I think that for you, it was able, you know, kind of like to see the full cycle too, you know, from the creation to the, to the actual promised land, you know, building and scaling a company. Uh, but at this time, you know, around, you know, you also, you know, have a very interesting conversation with one of the guys at Scale Venture Partners, which uh, kind of like was the segue to, to, to where you are today, right? Building your own uh, baby. Uh, and we'll get to that in just a minute. But, but what happened during that discussion? Yeah, no, I was approached by um, Rory O'Driscoll, absolutely incredible VC. Uh, they had acquired a company that was similar to uh, Quinn Street. Um, a company called Vantage Media. And so they were asking, it's like, okay, so we bought this asset. It's not performing to its potential. And is there a way that you, do you think you can come in and help us? And so I asked, I asked Rory to give me a bunch of data and I spent a weekend looking at it. And I went back to Rory and I was like, this is actually an incredible company. Um, you're doing some things that like, I just have never seen before. Um, and then there's these, 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 literally there's five things that you can do to really take it to the next level. Um, and uh, you guys should go hire somebody to go do these five things because you'll do great but I can't be the guy because I'm not moving to Los Angeles. I love San Francisco, you know, I'm here. Um, and so I, I kind of, I said no at the time, but uh, you know, I think we can all agree as you're starting off your career and you're growing your career, if a VC asks you to do a, do a favor for them, you try. So um, it was really nice to engage with scale and, and kind of give them kind of my perspective on, on, on the company. Um, but a few months, you know, if, if about a month later or two months later, I can't remember exactly my wife, came to me and said, hey, my sister's moving to Los Angeles. And, you know, we're starting a family and like, it'd be really nice to be around family. And so um, I'd like you to, 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 to like, let's move to Los Angeles. And so, you know, as I thought about my career, like it was the right time for me to, to, to be a CEO. 
um, for the first time. And so I call Rory back up and I'm like, hey, I just wanted to check in. How's your search going? And he's like, it's terrible. After you came in here and pitched us on here are the five things you need to do, we haven't been able to find the right person that can execute on your vision. Right. So if you're interested, please come on. And so that changed everything. So, um, I, you know, I moved down to Los Angeles, my wife, um, and, uh, you know, her sister moved, uh, moved to LA too. So that was great. And then what we basically did is we took that company and we pivoted it, right? Cause the opportunity there was to build something different on the base that they had. And we, we build it into a, a, an ad tech company that, that really focused our largest business became focused on health insurance, a business called healthplans.com at the time. And so that was kind of the journey that got me into my first kind of exposure to, to healthcare um, because I've been a B2B guy and a consumer guy prior. But I think that this was a really a critical moment in your career because during the time of, of doing health plans, you know, at that point is where you are exposed to the problem that you're essentially resolving today with Sidecar Health. Uh, so obviously, you know, health plans ended up being acquired uh, by Media Alpha. But in this case, I mean, it, it, it gave you access and visibility into a bigger problem that you felt it was necessary to cover in the market. So, so walk us through what were some of those sequence of events that happened to really bring Sycar Health to life. Yeah, Health Plans was an incredible business, right? So this was in the time of just after Obamacare, and suddenly health insurance was a consumer product. I'm sure you remember that with the exchanges. Um, and so suddenly consumers were shopping for health insurance for the first time. And so the healthplans.com business was incredible. What it did is it helped consumers get matched with, um, with health plans that were offering products in their area. And it did it in a way that the consumers could choose the right plan for them. And likewise, that the health plans could market to the consumers that they thought were the right you know, plan for them. It's kind of like eHarmony for, for health insurance selection. So the problem was that nobody wanted to buy anything. So we had 30 million people come to our website to buy health insurance. And if you guys remember, like that was at the time where there's a mandate, you have to buy this product. Yeah. Yet over a four year period, I think we sold 700,000 policies, right? So that means like 29.3 million people didn't buy anything and a product that you're forced to own and a product that mostly is paid for by the government. So it was one of these aha moments, like as a marketer, when you have this huge community of people trying to buy a product, and they're not buying it, you start asking yourself, why? Right? Like, what's the what's the problem? Like, so, so that started out like in 2017, my co founder and I, Veronica, like, we're looking at this, and we're just like, okay, obviously, affordability is a huge issue. Like the ACA has huge deductibles, high premiums, it's very expensive. Access is a problem, networks are very narrow. And everyone, you know, everyone believes that, you know, health insurance, like you always get surprise bills. I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but it happens to, it's happened to me. <laughs> yeah, right? It's not yeah. okay. So we're trying to solve this problem. And I had my own health experience that kind of led to the creation of Sidecar Health. Okay. So then, so then tell us about the immediate moment. I mean, that, uh, you know, finally, because I know that the founding, you know, was very interesting. So, so kind of like the, the team, you know, the band, you know, coming together and, and that moment where you said, we got to do this thing. Yeah. And so it, called, it all came around this, this, you know, health experience that I had. So, um, at, you know, in 2017, I was having some back issues and my doctor's like, you need to get an MRI. And so, you know, you go and you get an MRI. And because of how my traditional insurance worked, I ended up getting a bill, right? I'm sure you like, I got a bill for $1,330 for this MRI, lower back MRI. And I don't know, is that a good price? Like, I, I don't know. And I, you know, I felt fortunate that I could pay the 1300 bucks. So I did and kind of didn't think much of it. But about a month later, I had to get a second MRI. Um, and since I knew I was going to get billed 
to pay for it anyways, I happened to ask the receptionist if I could just pay for this with my Visa card. And she's like, sure. And she's like, it'll be $330. And so that was a shocking moment for me, just a huge aha moment. It's like, wait a minute. With my ins traditional insurance company, I am paying 13, over $1,300 for a service I can buy myself for 300 because it was the same doctor, same location, same procedure, right? And so I literally ran back to the office to Veronica and said, I don't know if this is a thing because I'm not a healthcare guy originally, but if paying for care with cash is cheaper, I think we can solve the affordability problem in the US healthcare system because Insurance is just a math equation, right? It's the cost of a claim times the likelihood of that claim plus a margin. And so if we could introduce a product that has a lower claims cost, that will translate immediately into a lower insurance cost. And so that's what we did. So we basically said, okay, that would suggest we could create a product that's 30, 40% cheaper than, than market. And so we started running around and doing a lot of work. We partnered with a great actuarial firm called Milliman to kind of run the numbers and say, hey, if this was true, you know, what could the insurance price be? And then we partnered with a great you know, a health policy team called Avalier Health. Uh, it was led and founded by a guy named Dan Mendelson that spun out of the Obama administration to help us think about regulatory approach because what we we're talking about was just something totally different. And so they came up with a structure of how we could launch our product. And then once it all came together, we went back to the, the board of the company and said, guys, we think this is an incredibly big idea. And we think it's one that, we, we, we as a team have to go and pursue. And so we, we basically went and said, hey, look, we can, we can hire a new team um, or we can sell the company. And the board decided like, let's, the company's doing really well. Let's go ahead and sell it. Let's monetize that asset. And so we did that at the end of 2017. And at the beginning of 2018, uh, Veronica and I started Sidecar Health. And we were really fortunate, like our head of engineering, our head of product came with us, part of the marketing team. And you know, we called ourselves the first five, started Sidecar Health with a PowerPoint deck and an idea. And off we went to start to, to, to see if we could change the world. That's amazing. So for the people that are listening to really get it, what ended up being the business model of Sidecar Health and how do you guys make money? Yeah, I mean, Sidecar Health is, um, is we are a health insurance company, but we're totally different than every other health insurance company. What we do is we give people the money they need to pay for care when they need it by giving them a visa card that actually pulls money from our claims accounts and allows consumers to use it to pay for doctors, MRIs, whatever, when they need it. And then we combine that buying power with information. We give them an app that tells people what things cost. Effectively, what we do then is turn patients into purchasers of care. We allow people to shop for care. And we, our benefit structure is, is very specific. What we do is we pay a fixed amount for every procedure you can do in the healthcare system. And this creates incredible benefits. So first of all, our product is dramatically cheaper than anything else that's out there, right? So uh, depending on the market, it can be 40% cheaper than what's out in the, to a comparable product, to, to a traditional insurance product. The second thing it is, is it it's in, creates incredible access. Alejandro, it turns out everybody takes Visa. So you can see any doctor you want. And that's really <laughs> important if you think it's important, right? You can see if you're in inner city, if you're in a rural area, like you may not be by a major health system that's in network. And that's ridiculous. Everybody deserves access to care. Yeah. And so that's the second thing we solved. And then the third thing that the, the product does, right, is uh, it solves all the problems around surprise bills. Like you, you, nobody should be getting a surprise $1,300 MRI bill. That's not okay. And so if you're actually paying for things, turns out you know what things cost and you're not surprised. Absolutely. And so that's the business model. So then how much capital have you guys raised for Sidecar Health? 
Patrick. Um, yeah, so we've done three rounds. We've raised $175 million. Um, and okay. we're, we're really fortunate to have unbelievable investors that are just trying to get us to move as fast as we can. And I know that uh, it hasn't been always a smooth ride, you know, raising the money. I know that you had, you know, some interesting, you know, events happening at the beginning with one of those VC meetings. So, so what actually happened? Yeah. So it's never a smooth ride raising capital. Now that we're established and we've established product market fit is the, is the parlay. Like it's, it's been, you know, um, much, a di let's call it a different process than it was early on. But early on, it was, it was pretty entertaining. So Veronica and I put our own money in to start the company to give us runway to go and, and find the right investors. Because like, I'm sure, you know, picking the right investors. And when I say right investors, I'm not talking about brands. I'm talking about people. Because, yeah. you know, they're going to be on your board. They're going to be part of your journey the whole time. So it's really, really important. At least, you know, again, this is the third time that I've helped build a company. So, like, I, I've learned that I care more about the, the people around the table than anything else. And so we're out starting to meet with different VCs. And, I, again, I've raised money before, but never from a PowerPoint deck. Um, and so, you know, when, when I'm building a team, um, you're probably the same. Like, I always look for, like, how do you fill in gaps? Like, where are your gaps? And luckily, I've got lots of gaps, so I have an opportunity to partner with lots of people. <laughs> but the, the, I'm not a healthcare guy traditionally. I grew up in a healthcare family, but I've always been a consumer and tech guy. And yeah. so the first kind of thing that I thought is, like, well, I need to go get healthcare investors, right? Makes sense. So, so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, networking to healthcare investors, sit down with a few of them. The first healthcare investor that I got a, a meeting with, I will not use their name. Uh, they were very nice to meet with us. Uh, I'm sitting down explaining the, the, the idea and the concept and what we think we can do and why we think that this is a big deal. And he very nicely at the end, end of listening to the, the elevator pitch and seeing some screenshots of, of our, our product that we expect, and he goes, okay, here's a, here's a, tell you what, Patrick, you're not from healthcare. Uh, healthcare is really hard. But here's what I tell you to do. I like your idea. But, but first, to prove to me that you can do hard things, I'd like you and your team to go build a better search engine than Google. And after you accomplish that, come back to me and I will fund your healthcare idea because that'll demonstrate to me you can do hard things. Wow. So I, you know, it's kind of an unbelievable no, right? <laughs> it's, like, it's not just, I don't know, you know, let us keep thinking, let us know how you do. It's like, you're, this idea is so ridiculous to even for me to consider it, you have to go build a better search engine than Google. Like, I'm, so I said to him, I said, look, you don't, you don't need to, you don't need to mean you could just say no. So, yeah, so I no, left this meeting going, all right, the healthcare guys are not going to be our people until we learn, until we prove that you can do this. And I kind of think about it like Tesla. Um, so, you know, Tesla, obviously their first, their first car, right? The Roadster was a Lotus that yeah. the team there ripped out all the innards, right? And they put in cell phone batteries. And so I think I can build an electric car on cell phone batteries that can go 250 miles. And, you know, that sounds a little crazy. But they proved it. And then they went and they did other things and they expanded market by market. And so what we did is we realized that what we needed to find was investors that are, understand consumer vision and that can really enable us uh, on how to help grow a company in that way. And so we chose Breakpoint Ventures to lead our round. And they have been incredible. And we can talk about them at any time. But like they've been incredible partners starting out and throughout our journey to date. And then we went out and proved that actually you can build a health insurance product based on cash. Um, and, you know, let's just say raising money has gotten a lot easier since. Yeah, no, I can, I can hear you. And when it comes to people, I mean, I'm right there with you. I, I fully agree that it's not about the brand, it's about the people. 
But when it comes to filtering investors that are in it for the right reasons, because as they say, the way that you raise money today is going to impact the way that you can raise money tomorrow. So I guess as you're filtering, you know, because now you've raised, you know, a, a fair amount of money. But when you were like really filtering the right people for the right reasons, what were some of the things that, uh, that you were looking for? Yeah, so it's always like whenever we sit down as a team to figure out who the right investors are, it's always a question of what are they going to what are they going to bring to the table? What's very very specific are they going to do? It's not just about capital, especially right now. So I mean, everybody knows that kind of the private markets are are pretty entrepreneur friendly right now. So it's really important to it's not about it's not about the amount of capital, and quite frankly, it's also not about the terms. It's about what value can you add. So the, my best example of this, like lately, is so in in our last round that we just did our C, it was led by a company out of Ohio called Drive Capital. They have been exceptional. And, um, you know, as we thought about kind of partnering, they came to us and said, these are the three things that we're going to do. We're going to help you kind of find people for your team. We're going to help you find your first, you have a consumer product. We're going to help you accelerate your launch around a business product offering. And this is how we're going to do it. And so for us, it's trying to understand what are we trying to accomplish during the next period between rounds? Like what is, as we think about our roadmap and growth, what are the milestones and then which investors and which belly buttons can actually influence the outcome um, and have proven with what they're coming and saying that they can do, have, have they proven that they've been able to do it for other entrepreneurs by talking to their portfolios? And so that's how we always evaluate things. And we're very, we're very thoughtful about where do we have gaps? Like the round before that, we chose to go with a fintech uh, investor because a lot of what we do, given the cards, is all fintech related. And so how can we help see around corners? And so that's how we think about things. I love it. So, so as we're thinking about plan and, and vision and future, you know, if, if you were to go to sleep tonight, Patrick, and you wake up, I mean, tremendous news, you wake up in a world five years later, and you wake up in a world where the vision of Sidecar Health is fully realized, what does that world look like? Uh, it, it, it's a very great world, right? It, it's a world <laughs> where, no, no, it is, it is, it is. Yeah. It's a world where everybody can afford health insurance. Everybody has access to care, right? And there's no surprises, right? So. We, we really believe, so we like, we like looking at Tesla because Tesla's done a great job of changing how people think about cars, right? Yeah. It's now obvious that we're all going to be driving electric cars and all of the traditional car companies are going, yep, I guess that makes sense. So let's all figure out how to go do that. So what we're doing is changing consumer behavior, just like cars, like you plug them in now, you don't go fill the gas station up. Like, so we expect the world to change where people are actually in control of their healthcare. In fact, that's why we're called Sidecar Health. We're putting people in the driver's seat for their health. We're just the sidecar. We're giving you the money and the information. And so that's the world. The world is where everybody goes and, and when they need a knee replacement, they say, hey, I'm gonna, what's the cost? And that they understand the cost, they understand the quality and they make good decisions, right? Uh, and that's the world where, where we think that needs to go in the world where everybody, whether it's Medicare or whether it's um, an ACA plan, whether it's an employer plan, everybody has coverage, everybody can afford it and everyone actually you know, has control over the situation. And for the people that are listening to get an idea on the on the size of the operation that you guys have today, I mean, is there anything that you can share, maybe like number of employees or anything to, to get an idea on how big Sidecar Health is today? Yeah, sure. I mean, we've been growing really fast. So like, ask me tomorrow again. So like, we, um, before the pandemic, we had 30 people. At the end of last year, we had 75. We currently have 150. We're going to about wow. 250 at the end of this year. We're wow. really ramping up for um, our launching of our product on the ACA. Like our first product was focused on the uninsured because nobody's watching out for the uninsured. So that was our first product because they have the biggest need. Our next product is the folks on the ACA because they have a big need and employer next. And so we've been growing employees to kind of support that great team. 
from a, a member perspective, we're going to end the year with, we're still very young. We've only been selling products for like, you know, 18 months. So, and you, it's a, you go state by state in insurance. So we're going to end with about 30,000 members this year. Um, so we're really excited about that. Um, but you know, it's, it's pretty great to go from zero to 30,000 people and you know, whatever, 18, yeah, no, 24 months in the market. That's, that's amazing. Well, congratulations on, on that remarkable growth. And one of the questions that I typically ask the guests that come on the show is, imagine I put you into a time machine. And I put you into a time machine with all the knowledge that you have now, through the ups, through the downs, everything that you've seen. And I'm able to put you in front of your younger self, that younger Patrick that, you know, is thinking about starting something, right? Uh, maybe that younger Patrick that, that at the point where you were maybe having that discussion with, with, the, with the, a partner at a Scale Venture Partners. Uh, where you were having exposure to the world of startups. So if you could give that younger Patrick one piece of advice before launching a company, what would that be and why, given what you know now? Well, I'll tell you what I won't tell him. I, I, I won't tell him how hard regulatory law is. Right? <laughs> like, he yeah. doesn't need to know that. He needs to know none of that. Like, oh my. Like, yeah. what we're doing has never been done before. So the amount of time we have to spend with regulators, getting them to not look at us funny, is, is a lot. Um, I mean, it took us uh, 253 days to get our first regulatory approval. So if I knew what I knew, if I knew everything I know now, I think, I think it would be hard to start. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't tell them that. What I would tell them that, like, you just have to lower a shoulder and focus. Like, there are going to be people that tell you no all the time, and you just have to believe in what you're doing. Um, like before starting Sidecar Health, I spent about 20 years, you know, basically doing advertising, right? And, you know, I've been very fortunate um, in, in that we've had success and I've done okay. Um, but I don't never felt like I, I help people. And as I, I looking back at my, my old stuff, like you have no idea how many people you're going to help with what you're doing. Like our, our first expense that we ever received was a family of four where the father could not afford health insurance for himself, but he got health insurance for his wife and his two kids. And they went out and got a well child care visit at a doctor they had never been to. And because we, we pay a fixed amount and they had shopped around, they actually got cash back after getting care, which is kind of how our product works. If you shop around, you keep the savings if you find a, a less expensive doctor. So it, it's so heartwarming to know that we created a, a good health experience for a family that would otherwise not be able to afford it. So I would tell myself, like, everything that you're doing and all of the ups and downs are going to be worth it because you're going to have an impact on people on a real, real basis every day from day one. Um, and, and that feels really good and is, is worthy. Absolutely. So, so, Patrick, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Oh, I mean, it's easy to find uh, find me and and, and Sidecar Health. The best thing to do is to learn about us. Come to sidecarhealth.com, of course. You guys can you can reach me just by shooting me an email. I'm at pquigley at sidecarhealth.com. There you go. Well, Patrick, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Really appreciate the time. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, Share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. 
You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.